Welcome, friends, to the Life on Purpose podcast. I'm your host, Amy Debrick, and I have some exciting news to share with all of you. My first book, Embolden, will be releasing on April 24th and is now available for presale at barnesandnoble.com and Amazon. My Emboldened book kind of encapsulates the message we're promoting here on the Life on Purpose podcast this year by using our experiences as an opportunity to either be emboldened or to embolden others. I co-wrote this book with my oldest daughter, Blair, and our hope was that women could find the strength and courage to do that after reading this encouragement journal. And as we keep moving ahead in 2021, I want to remind you that it is only with intention that we make things happen in our life. And with that, I'm happy to keep sharing incredible women with you and what they are doing to embolden their lives and those around them. As always, I hope you find these conversations inspiring and encouraging to know that no matter what your age or circumstance, you have the power and choice to make a difference and to be emboldened. To learn more about how to get a copy of Emboldened, just visit my website at amydebrick.com and get all the latest news and information there. I hope you enjoy these stories and I look forward to talking to you soon. Well, this morning on Life on Purpose podcast, I have the privilege of interviewing both Tammy and Pat McLeod. So welcome, both of you. Thank you, Great to be here. And so, you know, before we fully dive in with your new book, Hit Hard, I wondered if you could give the listeners just a little background on, you know, both of you, where you've come from and, and how you landed here. So we are both Harvard chaplains. We had worked in California and then Montana, but ended up in Boston 21 years ago. So we've been working with undergraduates for a long time. It's so fun. That's, yeah. that's awesome. We, what I would add is, um, so campus ministry is another way of referring to what we do. Um, we do it here mostly in, in the city of Boston, but we also have been um, heavily involved in international ministry, particularly in, in sub-Saharan Africa and South Africa. We've been going there for years, and that actually factors into the story that we, we tell in the book that we've written. Right. Well, what is CREW? Because I was reading that under both of your credentials. So can you explain that just a little bit to someone like me who is not super familiar? I know it has to do with some of these organizations but and what you're, what you're doing, but what is that exactly? So CREW is an international, interdenominational Christian organization. So it's in about 190 countries in the world and on most of the college campuses in the U.S., Wow. That's amazing. That's amazing. That's wonderful that you guys are doing that and just faithful in that. I mean, what a gift to those young adults and such a, that's such a great age to really be diving in and investing. Don't you think just, I mean, I'm going by my kids at that age, they could use all the adults like you just on a regular basis, filtering in um, with all of the, you know, just insecurities at that age. So I'm sure it's a really appreciated um, opportunity, but so I want to talk to you about Hit Hard. I know that this book is about the um, tragedy that you faced with your son, Zach. Um, so can you talk a little bit about that, just um, surmising what that tragedy was? Sure. Let me, let me begin by just telling you how this whole story started for us. We were 
Tammy and I were actually with our youngest son, Soren, we were at the first large group meeting of the year for the campus ministry that we run here in the city of Boston. And if you can just picture an auditorium that's filled with a couple hundred happy, laughing, smiling students just after kind of like at the conclusion of a, of a rock concert, they're all just like hugging each other and enjoying each other when suddenly uh, a Harvard student comes up behind me and interrupts an a conversation that I was in with another student and said, your son Nate is trying to get a hold of you. And she handed me her phone. Now, now uh, my, our, our phones had been tucked away in our uh, backpacks and he'd been trying to reach us. So he was, he just lit into me as soon as I answered the phone. He said, dad, why aren't you answering your phone? Uh, Zach's been hurt parents were calling then the coaches were calling and now the hospital is calling and and they say that he's being airlifted to a hospital and, and will have to undergo an emergency brain surgery and they need they need your permission to do this and so seconds later Tammy and I and Soren are, are racing down um, Massachusetts Avenue to get to a hospital that we had never never even been to before and um, we were met there by someone who took us to meet with the doctor in the presence of Zach, who is still dressed and in his football outfit and unconscious and intubated. Um, the doctor told us that he had suffered a, a, a significant traumatic brain injury and that they would actually have to open up his skull cap and remove the blood, some blood that was accumulating there to take some pressure off the brain and, and, um, and to cauterize vessels to stop the bleeding. And, and he informed us that this could result in death. And he said, but he could also have a full recovery and, and, or anything in between and sign here. And so we did and, and they wheeled him away. And five, min, five hours later, uh, they came and got us. They brought us to meet the doctor he said, well, you know, we did what we can do. Now we um, just have to wait. And um, so Zach did survive that surgery. He survived now, I think, three or, three or four more surgeries. Uh, but a portion of his brain didn't survive. And that was really something that kind of began our journey into this world that we call ambiguous loss. Right. Well, and you and I, right before we started this actual official interview, we're talking about loss and the word loss. And it, you know, there's always that immediate assumption that you, you, you lose somebody, that they actually pass away. When in fact, you can still lose a person. You don't have to actually lose a person to lose a person, which is really what you've experienced. And so, um, you know, I think a lot of times that's not recognized as a loss immediately until you're living it. And so I appreciate you sharing this, this journey, because I would ask you what that process was like, you know, for you to kind of finally, or not finally, because I think, you know, you, you do it every day, right? I mean, it, it's, it's not a process that's going away. It's just, a, it's just, that's your life now. So how did you reconcile to, you know, move ahead with the loss of how Zach was before as to how it is now. I was hoping that Zach would have a strong recovery. And about the one year mark, I realized that wasn't going to happen. So he went from the ICR to a, an acute rehab where he learned to walk and eat again. 
for example. I see you, you meant not ICR. Sorry. <laughs> That's okay. And then he went to a neuro rehab school that was residential because they said, if you want him to have the strongest recovery possible, that's what we would recommend. He should not go to your home. And so that was sad, but at the one year mark, we realized even after going to that neuro rehab school, he was not gonna have a full recovery. So I started reading grieving books, but they actually weren't helping because Zach didn't die. He was still here, but he wasn't the same. And it took six years to find out what type of loss we were dealing with. So at year six, I wanted to write a graduate research paper and I couldn't find any friends who knew any books about our type of loss. So I eventually called Spalding Rehab where Zach had stayed. And I said, I wanna write this research paper. Could you please give us the term? What is this called? Right. And the next day the librarian wrote back with two of Pauline Boss's article. She's the person who coined the term ambiguous loss. And I think it might be helpful to just say what it is. She actually defined the term. Um, she talks about two types. So physical absence with psychological presence, like people missing due to war or terrorism or natural disasters, but also divorce, adoption, and immigration, mm. or even incarceration. And then there's the psychological absence with the physical presence, which is what we're dealing with, with traumatic brain injury, but also there's Alzheimer's disease, other dementias, um, chronic mental illness, mm. and addiction. Okay. So all of these are examples of having and not having at the same time. So when I ordered her books, I devoured them and I finally felt understood. And she just talks about there's no linear process of letting go and rarely is there acceptance. And like you said, there's never closure. Right. And what's worse on top of all of that is the loss is not validated. Mm. There are no ceremonies mm. for people who have ambiguous loss. Right. Right. Oh, that's so, that's so such a powerful message, I think, because somebody like yourself and it took you six years and, you know, this is kind of prompted what my journey was even starting this podcast and being a writer myself. Um, it's amazing how tragedy and crisis and loss can really reframe and reshape your faith and how, where it brings you. And, and I think in just having you create this book as a resource for someone um, is just telling to the fact that you don't want somebody to have to suffer for six years. You know what I mean? If you could just shorten, I mean, everybody's timetable is different clearly, but you know, the whole goal I think is if you don't have to, if you can help somebody shorten the duration of getting to the place that you finally you know, felt validated. Um, that's huge. And that's such a gift, Tammy, you know, I mean, just really just as a parent who, like I had said before, who has faced loss, um, there are names for certain losses, which is, 
Amazing. And, and who would think of that until you're experiencing it, right? You know, just how important that is to be identified as, oh, she's somebody or he's, you know, these parents are, are this. But when you don't have that category, it, it's funny how something that simplistic can make a huge difference in somebody's healing. You know, and so I also want to just ask you, because I know that um, with my personal experience, in addition to siblings, and um, it sounds like you guys are a really close family, as we are with our other children, and, but it does affect your marriage. And I don't know what that was like for, for you two, but I know that when I read this in the very beginning of your book, it struck me as far as what happened to us immediately when we lost our son and you had had in the front in times of crisis, every relationship becomes an at risk relationship. And I don't know that you were referring to marriage, but when I read it, I always go back to that place in the hospital when the pastor immediately came into my husband and I and said, um, you know, to stay together, to work it out. And I was, I was actually offended because I thought, my gosh, we just lost our son. Why, why would you even say something like that? Like it was just, he needed to get it out because obviously he knew what the experience is when people deal with that moving forward. And so when I read that, I immediately, a certain thing that just went back to that moment. And I just wondered how it affected you two in your marriage as a couple, you know, people grieve and heal it different times and different processes and how that was for you both. Yeah, I, I think, uh, well, Amy, thanks for sharing that. And I mean, just even what you've just shared, I'm just imagining that conversation and, um, it kind of, it just sends some chills up my back because it, I can connect with that and relate with that. I think for Tammy and me, well, let me just say this. Boss said something that was to me very helpful. This is the person who coined the term ambiguous loss. She said that the key to living with and in, in sort of enduring an ambiguous loss is learning to live well with both having and not having at the same time. And she said, you know, that's that's a really hard thing for an individual to do. They will typically do one or the other, or sometimes neither. Um, and he said, and but then she added that it's even more complicated when two people are dealing with the same ambiguous loss, and one is doing one, and the other is doing the other. In other words, one person is is you know obsessing over the son that he still has, but living in complete denial about the son that was lost and the other person who really is acknowledging this as a loss as a as like a death um, but but not doing as well at revising her attachment to the son who is still alive that's our story and and that's one example of how these kinds of how grief can torque a relationship in general but ambiguous loss can torque it um, in, in an even more complicated way. And, and I agree with you too, by the way, I was the one obviously that was living in denial and not really validating Tammy's pain or grief 
because I was denying my own. And, um, but, but it is like one of our, our, our counselor that we were meeting with, a grief counselor, made the point that, you know, there's the book on Kubler-Ross, is that her name, mm -hmm. who, who wrote a book on grief and the stages of, of grief and how there's the initial shock and then there's uh, bargaining or is it, I forget, denial, denial and then there's depression, there's bargaining, there's all these different stages. And, and in my mind, I was assuming that those were sort of sequential mm -hmm. um, facts that we could just expect to move through them slowly and maybe not at the same pace but eventually you know we might sync up once in a while but his point was you know it's grief is a lot more like a beef stew when you're take out a spoon you don't know you might get just a potato and the next time you might get a carrot and the next time you might get a big piece of meat you know he says like that's kind of how grief is you wake up one day and you're just bargaining with you know trying to trying to somehow resolve this in some way with God or with what, uh, with, with medical science and other days you're, you're depressed and other days, you know, you're in complete denial. And, and that is kind of true of how it was for us. But I think the bigger issue with ambiguous loss was that I was, I was obsessing over the son I still had and in, in denial, uh, about the son that I lost. And she, Tammy was just on the opposite end of that. So when I tried to share how I was doing, he could only take so much. <laughs> he didn't want to hear all of my losses, except for one night. One night, he just let me share a whole litany of losses. So I talked for 20 minutes and we teach this interpersonal communications course for couples. And he did what is called the skill of inviting. When a person stops, you just say, tell me more or keep going. Or As opposed to trying to solve their problem or <laughs> fix them or read my sort of own story into her sure. story. Yeah, so it was great. He didn't try to fix anything or solve anything. He just let me talk for 20 minutes about all the things I had lost. And it was so meaningful. Mm. Well, it, it it's hard and, you know, and my loss and everybody's loss in general, we, we know is unique, but ambiguous loss compared to even when you actually physically do lose someone is different. It, it just is. And so like with everything else and the grieving process, it's going to be different even within marriage. And we had the same thing. We grieved completely different. I mean, six months in, I was looking for where that pastor was the night that everything happened. Cause I was like, he was onto something. <laughs> <laughs> um, we are completely at two different ends of the spectrum. And, you know, and I, and it's funny, um, Pat, I don't know if it's just more of a, a fatherly, just that's the approach. But, you know, my husband was similar to that. He got up every day and went to work and didn't talk about anything. And he was just, he was just going, you know, he was just going to keep going, keep going. And, and I, and I don't know about you, Tammy, but I, I mean, I was crumbling, but I was trying to also save face, you know, um, have some dignity publicly. People thought I was doing way better than I was, but to him, I, I got to a point where I didn't want to share anymore because I felt embarrassed. I thought he was doing way better than I was. And I just, you know, I thought, man, like, I got to get it together here. You know, he's getting up and, and moving on. Well, that was just his way of dealing with it. It wasn't necessarily the right way or his, he wasn't grieving any less than I was. It's just, 
it's just a matter of figuring it all out. But um, so grateful to God that things do come together. And, um, and, you know, that's the other thing I want, the piece I wanted to add here is, you know, for us, the grief and tragedy really reframed our faith in a, in a completely different way. And so I would ask how that has really helped you all just in your, not just your marriage and your family, but just in your daily life. I mean, obviously you had a strong faith base before that we do, we did as well, but nothing to the degree or magnitude it is now in just the appreciation, um, the gratitude for the, the process of everything and, and what we could really get out of it. If we stopped trying to rush past it, you know, that was my grief as I was just trying to mentally, where can I run next? So I don't have to deal with it when really it's, it's hard to sit in it, which I'm sure you guys can understand, you know, and, and with ambiguous loss, I feel like you're always sitting in it to some degree, I would imagine. So, um, how has your faith really transformed? Would you say during this process? For me, I had read verses like Psalm 34 that talk about how God is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit, but I hadn't experienced it at a really deep level until I was brokenhearted and crushed in spirit in a massive way. So I went straight to the Psalms and I was really encouraged and strengthened through the Psalms because the Psalmist would just cry out um, sharing their honest feelings with God. So it was like a model to me, the Psalms being the prayer book of the Hebrew people. So I just started to cry out to God um, with the pain and experienced his nearness and suffering. And it wasn't like we were some special family better than other people or something, but it's actually God's nature to be near those who are suffering. So I think that's the biggest thing I learned, right? Yeah, for, for me, um, it's interesting because about seven years before this happened, I had given a talk on at a, at a room, in a room filled with people who do what I do, they're campus ministers. And I had been studying the Sermon on the Mount, which is one of the most famous sermons in the Christian tradition by Jesus, where he says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And afterwards, a guy came up to me and, and, and just sort of laid into me with these questions. He's like, have you ever really suffered? Have you ever really, have you ever lost anyone? And he, and then something else about, you know, have you ever really grieved? And it's like, he wasn't really asking me a question. He was making a statement and uh, he was right. I was like, I, my answer was, you know, well, I guess I lost a couple of grandparents and he's like, yeah, that's what I thought. And, and, and um, you know, it's, it wasn't just that I had never been taught how to grieve. It was that um, I was raised and taught not to grieve. I mean, as a, as a young man, I was often given these, you know, messages that, you know, big boys don't cry, tough it out, uh, no visible sign of weakness, focus on the positive. These are, this is the culture that I was a part of. And so I thought I was doing all the right things by just, you know, focusing on the positive and not, you know, when this thing happened. So fast forward to, 
you know, about four years into this. Um, well, actually, I'll even back up a little bit because people have 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 asked us since this happened. You know, if especially when we're in in a setting that's not necessarily a religious setting, and they say, "You guys are like chaplains. You had this terrible thing happen to you. Mm. That must have upset your faith, you know, and your belief in in this loving God that that you allege exists." And uh, my first attempt at answering that was so bad that I was like, you know, I probably need to like <laughs> think about that. And, and, and so uh, since then, I've just been, I've told people, I'm like, you know, what's interesting to me is that like, if, if what you're asking is, have I ever questioned or doubted my faith? The answer is absolutely yes, mm -hmm. I do. I've often had questions about my faith. Um, but ironically, none of those happened at the moments of, of our deepest sadness and, and experiences of, of loss with Zach. In fact, and this is the honest truth to the contrary, like of the moments in life where I have been so overwhelmed by my confidence that there is a God, it is uh, four of the five of those happened after this journey and when I was at these most desperate moments, because guess what? It was at those moments <laughs> that I was overwhelmed by the sense of what I had actually shared with those people that night, which is that the blessedness, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. The blessedness of mourning is that it brought me more deeply into my understanding of the truth of the Christian message, which is a message of a suffering God, a God who was crucified, a God who could understand the pain that I was experiencing as, as a father watching my own son suffer. I mean, that's, so in those moments, I was just overwhelmed by this revelation, this deeper understanding of who it is that I've come to know as, as the God of the universe, a suffering God. Right. That's so beautiful. And that, and that is so true. I mean, not for everybody, like, we obviously know, but I, I had, we had a similar, I mean, I say that, and we had a few other things that had happened um, also after that time, but right before my son died, my brother had passed away from a brain tumor. And so I had had a lot of anxiety um, right along for after those two tragic events. And then um, at 40, I said, when everybody was planning out their midlife crisis, um, God laid it on me to um, battle out a cancer diagnosis, which this will be my 10 year mark this year. Um, but at that time, and I'm, I can totally relate to what you're saying. I, that wasn't a time ever, those two times, the tragedies or with that diagnosis that I ever questioned God, who he was, his strength. If anything, I said, those were the times where I actually, he saved my life. I had to surrender. I had to humble myself, surrender it all to him. And had I not experienced those, I would have never done it. Mm -hmm. I, 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 I hadn't done it. I, I had no intention of doing that. I thought I was kind of status quo. I was a believer and, you know, beyond scratching the surface, I guess there probably wasn't too much there to, you know, like to this guy's point who was almost kind of drilling you, like, do you even know, like, and, you know, and that's interesting too, as an aside, 
when you have to almost like practice some of these answers at first, it's like, you're, I had to think too, you're stumbling over your own responses. Like that's probably not a great, <laughs> I need to be better in, and how I'm trying to translate what I'm trying to say here. But, um, but I think as you grow and your confidence in God grows in your confidence in, in your faith grows, I think that's when you have better answers. That's because you're, you're living it. You've already experienced it. You, you know what the difference is. You're talking about it now, as opposed to preaching that then and how that affects you now preaching that again to a crowd, you, you know, the difference. Yeah. So, um, I think that that's wonderful. I think you two are just, you remind me so much of my husband and I, I, I could talk to you all day long, but, um, I just think you're doing amazing things. I'm so excited to promote this book. I think um, anytime we can help in somebody's journey of healing and, um, and, you know, even for me, you know, I've learned a ton from your book. I didn't know the term ambiguous loss before that. Um, you know, I knew there wasn't a name for it, but I always think it's so important to get as much information out. And so I appreciate your story. And I just wanted to ask you in closing, um, you know, you're not only in addition to Zach's experience, um, how has this whole process allowed you not only to, cause we're talking about emboldened being emboldened this year, which I feel like your message just screams that. So how have you not only been emboldened, but how do you continue to embolden others based off of Zach's story? For me, when I talked about being in the Psalms and experiencing the nearness of God and suffering, that has made me be more bold in ministry to college students mm. because they have a lot of pain to deal with. Mm. And especially with the pandemic year, they've lost so many things. Right. And so I can look at them in all sincerity and say, I really want to encourage you to move toward the pain because when you do, you're going to find God there because mm -hmm. God is near to the suffering. And so it just has given me so much more courage to invite them to move toward God in their pain. Mm -hmm. yeah. um, I, I think, you know, I, I've become a real advocate for, and, and mind you, I'm a person who like, like I studied science and math in, in college. And so this isn't, I didn't, I didn't really know I loved stories until like my last semester where I had to take a literature class to fill out some of these requirements to graduate. And I was like, wow, this is, this is so amazing. I just love this. And uh, so I'm a bit, I've become a huge advocate for the power of story. Mm. Uh, because not only is it, you know, do we learn from stories and a lot of moral learning, a lot of like our spiritual imagination is formed by the stories that we read and that we take in and that we tell. Uh, but, but, you know, we, we find our heroes in stories, people who give us, like you say, the boldness and the courage. And, um, and, they, and the stories also will take us on these emotional journeys that will surface and soften these hard emotions that we have in life, including like in our case, this unresolved grief and pain, I think that, that um, comes out by, right. as you go on this emotional journey. Well, 
Um, I think the best thing about a great story is that we have small stories of tragedy in our life uh, that are begging for some bigger story that can absorb them and make sense of them and give us hope in light of them. And I think Zach, I think, uh, I think Zach's story points us to that bigger, larger story. And I, you know, I, I hope Kid Hard will do that for people and give them, you know, an, an exemplar in the person of our own son. Uh, maybe there's things that they will see in the way that we journeyed through this that will actually, they can live into that story and they can learn from that story and they, they can uh, find hope and they can um, see the possibility of redemption in the brokenness and, and, and tragedies of, their, of our lives. So right. that's a long answer. Probably could say that a little shorter. So. No, I, I think it's great. I, I, I totally agree with you. And I think that one of the things that um, I think that this makes this book so wonderful is the vulnerabilities in it. And I think that's how you really do bring out these other stories and um, can re and other people can relate to your story and feel a part of it. And, and there's an understanding there, you know, you're both very honest. And so I think the more um, someone can really be that vulnerable and in, in sharing their own hardships and, and grief, um, that's where people connect and they, and that's where they find the hope like, okay, well, it wasn't just, you know, this happened and now they're here. It's this happened. And, and, and this is where we were down here and, and then up here and down here again. And you know what I mean? It's, I think that that's where people really can find hope is knowing that, okay, I'm not alone. I, there's hope for me yet. You know, I might not be where they are yet, but I see them and I see what they've been through and that, that can be me someday. So, well, I am so happy to have you both. Like I said, I could have wiped my whole schedule out today and talked to you all day long, but it has been just an honor to interview both of you. So thank you so much. You're welcome, thank Amy. You. Thanks for having us. Well, that's it for us today. If you want some additional encouragement and resources, please go to my website at amydebrick.com. I look forward to having you meet me back here next week so we can move ahead with your next steps, feeling more confident and hopeful. In the meantime, don't forget to live your life on purpose. Have a wonderful weekend and God bless.